Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters. And, what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Rebecca Vigil. Dun-dun-dun. Dun, motherfucking dun. That and more, but before that... I just want to say, hey, we have a new $25 per month Patreon donor to give a shout out to. Mark Davis is the director of summer programs for adults at Idlewild Arts in California. Thank you so much, Mark, for being a $25 a month Patreon patron of ours. Everyone else out there, if you can't give $25 a month, maybe you can give $10 a month or five or three or one, whatever it is, go to patreon.com slash risk and become a patron of ours to help keep this whole thing running. It takes so very much to keep all this running. And there's so much more we want to do. We want to be putting out bonus episodes. We want to create a recording booth so that I can finally be recording things you know, much more professionally. We want new equipment. We want to be touring to more cities, offering more workshops for free for marginalized communities. There's so much more we want to be doing. So help become a part of it by going to patreon.com slash risk and look at all the wonderful perks and prizes that are there for people who do support us and help keep us going. Also, I'll never forget a few years ago when we got our stamps.com kit. We got ourselves a little digital scale, right? And the instructions for printing out the postage on your computer. And I have very, very rarely been to the post office again, usually at Christmas time for some big, you know, getting a package from someone else, right? <laughs> I can now mail any letter, any package using just my computer and printer, and I can usually avoid the hassle of going to the post office. You can create your own stamps.com account in minutes online without equipment to lease, no long-term commitments. You just click 
print, mail, and you're done. You know, Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service to your fingerprints. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package, any class of mail using your computer and printer that makes it easy. They'll send you this digital scale that automatically calculates exact postage. They'll even help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. No need to lease an expensive postage meter. We use Stamps.com and we love it. And right now, you can enjoy the Stamps service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus postage and a digital scale without long-term commitments. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com, enter RISK. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. Now, here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is beastie boys behind me now and we are calling today's episode embattled these are three stories about people who were in strife at odds with people they were close to these get increasingly intense and intimate these three stories from live shows one in brooklyn one in los angeles and one in carborough north carolina so awesome stuff today hey i you know we're going to get in the habit now of calling out for specific kinds of stories if you follow us on facebook risk show on facebook you can see these call outs but I'll, I'll mention them on the podcast pretty often too i think so right now risk is looking for stories about people who have faced prejudice in some concrete way whether it was a case of you know being the victim of a hate crime or dealing with a bully at school or uncovering some sort of underhanded sort of discrimination, maybe systemic somehow, might be a tense complication at the office, uh, an altercation in the subway system, a drama amongst your extended family. The prejudice could be about race or religion, orientation, age, disability, anything. If you have a story, or if you know someone who has a story along those lines, Email us through the submissions page at wristshow.com slash submissions. In the subject line, you can say this is a prejudice story. There's a video at the submissions page with tips on how to pitch us and what risk is all about. If someone has never shared a story before and is worried about, ah, how do I do this and what, what is risk really all about? You can just email me directly at kevin at risk-show.com and I'll walk you through it even more so than on the submissions page. So prejudice stories, send them our way. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from one of our very favorite storytellers, a regular of ours, one of the cherished members of the Risk family, 
Mr. Ray Christian, who has an amazing podcast of his own that you really should check out called What's Ray Saying? But before that, this is the first appearance ever of the remarkable and wonderful Rebecca Vigil. Rebecca is so talented in so many ways. If you are in New York City or anywhere near New York City, you've got to check out her show, Your Love, Our Musical. Rebecca and her performing partner, Evan Kaufman, improvise these musicals. Every It's new every time they do it. It's remarkable. And you can find her at RebeccaVigil.com. Here she is now at our monthly live show at the Bell House in Brooklyn, Rebecca Vigil, with a story we call Words and Music. I'm Rebecca. Just to get you started out, I went to 13 different schools in three states growing up. What's your first question when you hear that? Anybody? What? Why? <laughs> I should have made that more specific. Um, great. Uh, why do you think I moved a lot? Army brat. Yeah, no, not at all that admirable. Um, my parents were very young very poor, and hated each other. <laughs> Congratulations, sir. Um, it was either uh, passing me back and forth, like, I'm 27, I have an eight-year-old. I don't want an eight-year-old anymore. There happened, thank you, there happens to be, <laughs> there happens to be another person obligated to this eight-year-old, so I'm going to send her to that other person or I would be with one parent and, you know, I didn't know the ins and outs because I was a kid, so it would be a, we have to go now, mommy and daddy can't afford this place anymore. I'm sure there was a lot more specifics to that, uh, but I didn't care to know them. So the fifth grade was the worst. I went to three schools in fifth grade, 10, a 10-year-old girl, three different schools, so I became excellent at wooing a crowd. Uh, I, it'll, you'll get there. Um, but <laughs> Thank you. Uh, but uh, I, I became really good at making friends very quickly. Um, but I also became very angry at my parents. And I was smart and was the only one for a while. They had kids and started other families. But I became a very angry, depressed kid that was wondering why did I have to ruin these two people's lives that they constantly would tell me look I love you but if I could do it again uh, so uh, it's funny it's funny now um, yeah so um, I'm 32 and I have already <laughs> I really appreciate that um, <laughs> you never go to a bar and hear that um, but uh, I already have had huge swaths of time that I haven't spoken to my parents. And in this particular time that this story takes place, I had already not spoken to my mom from about 14 to 21. A lot of anger. And so, like, around 
the beginning of the year, when I was about to turn 21 in May, my mom and I started to pretty much like long distance date on the phone. Uh, we started, you know, like, well, I don't know, what do you like now that you have, you know, sex? I don't know, you know. Like, uh, I had just started. Uh, no, but... Uh, <laughs> We would, you know, talk on the phone and we were getting to know each other. She was going to come to my 21st birthday, which is a huge deal because then in the same room would be my father, my mother, his second wife, whom was the woman that he cheated on my mother with, and then his third wife, whom he had cheated on the second <laughs> wife with. They would all be in the same room. But it was going to be fun. It was going to be fucking hats and fucking, you know, booze and, and karaoke. I was huge into karaoke at the time because I was a hack. And I, uh, and I loved karaoke. And, and except, you know, this guy Jeff at my party freaking ruined it. And just like, he's one of those guys that's like going to sing karaoke till he dies. Like, the room is cleared and he's still like, you know, fucking any way you want. You know, like he's still, nobody wants it, Jeff. Just. So, um, anyway, so that was amazing. And it went really well. Everybody was great. And I was like, holy shit. Life is kind of normal, crazy, but I was, again, the same person, 21, and the booze was the most important part of the party. Um, so, <laughs> thank you. Your woos are amazing. I appreciate all of them. I keep them coming. Um, so, um, then a good, thank you. Thank you. You know what? I'm not going to tell it. Everybody just woo, and we'll get through this. Uh, <laughs> Um, so anyway, Christmas runs around, <laughs> comes around, whatever it comes around. And it, uh, <laughs> uh, my mom, we're talking about, you know, the holidays and whatever, sensitive topic when you're newly dating your mother. And, um, uh, she's like, you know what I want you to get me for Christmas? I want you to audition for this game show. I was like, yeah, exactly. Somebody in the crowd was like, ugh. I was like, yeah, no. I'm, at this point, a very depressed, alcoholic Olive Garden employee at this, <laughs> at this particular, living at home, uh, way less physically realized than I am now. Um, to the listening audience, I'm very attractive. And, um, yeah. No, you already know by the beginning of the story, the woos mean nothing, listening audience. <laughs> Uh, uh, so, so, yeah, so I'm like, I don't want to, but this is it, right? This is like, I gotta go prove that I'm, I'm, I'm in this relationship. We're gonna do this. So, I love you. Merry Christmas. I'm gonna go to a karaoke bar in L.A., and I'm gonna sing karaoke to try to get on Don't Forget the Lyrics, which was a game show on Fox in the early 2000s. Yes. Absolutely, we got some Wayne Brady fans in the house. And here he is. No, um, so uh, for the listening audience, he's standing behind me <laughs> silently. Um, okay, so, so I go, Kid from Kid and Play is one of the judges, and um, you know, cool detail. And I, I, I decide to sing. Uh, 
Georgia, Georgia. And I'm like, you know, a stocky, awkward white girl. And uh, one of the judges is from Georgia. And I know, that's proof there's a God. And um, <laughs> they asked me to come in the next day to like audition for the producers. And I call my mom and I say, hey, I did it. You know, and I'm anticipating like, and that's done. You know, whatever. She's like, oh my God, this is amazing. I, I knew it. I had a feeling. You know what you got to do, right? What? You, you got to play up how bad a mother I was. <laughs> I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, yeah, you got you to gotta talk about how bad your childhood is. And, and, and that will get you. That'll be good. And they'll put you on. You know, the money will change everything. And I'm like, you know what? You're fucking right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I do that, you know? Like, I haven't seen my mom in forever. And, oh, if I could only have the money to see my mother. You know? <laughs> uh, minus all the actual, you know, fine tissue of the real story. So... I nail it. Uh, you know, I can sing and I do that and I'm like mildly entertaining at this point. So I get on the show. I thought that we would play it. Do you want to play the game show to see how well you would do? Yeah? Okay, cool. All right. So what the game show, don't forget the lyrics. There is a woman who's a huge fan. She could explain it better, but I will explain it. So, ma'am, I appreciate you. So... What happens is it's like karaoke millionaire, right? You sing karaoke, the words disappear, you have to fill in the blanks, and you move up the money. And if you get past $25,000, you keep 25, uh, and it's up to a million. Cool? So uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to sing the song, and then you have to finish it, because I bet you're all really fucking cocky right now, and you would think you could win more money than me, but I'm telling you, it's a hard-ass game, okay? Okay, so first song, you ready? Your love is lifting me higher than I've ever been lifted before. Keep it up, feel my desire, and I'll be at your side. Forevermore. Excellent job, everybody. <laughs> Forevermore. Seven of you would have gone on. You see how hard? It's $2,500 out of a million. Y'all lost, okay? So I had to use the first lifeline. I use, there are three lifelines. One is uh, multiple choice. One is fill in the blanks, like they give you a couple words and then you finish it. And one is lifeline. You have to bring two people, okay? So I used the fill in the blanks and I got it right. All right, so I'm down. Thank you very much. Eight years ago. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I was excited then. Okay, so... So we're, I'm going to skip, and we're going to go to the $10,000 question, all right? Here we go. What is the first lyric? <laughs> That's so funny. I, I did forget the lyrics. Uh, yeah. 
Excellent. I wanted to make the I forgot the lyrics joke, so thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, so I nailed that, of course, because all of America can. And then uh, uh, we went on a $25,000 question. So backstage, the producers not only told me, oh my God, you're amazing, to like really lift my spirits. They're just like, I've never seen eyes that beautiful. I've worked in Hollywood like 25 years and I've never seen a waist like yours. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so they also said, I need you to rehearse an answer. When he asks, what are you going to do with the $25,000? You respond with, I haven't seen my mother in seven years. I would use the money to finally see her again. And I was backstage. I haven't seen my mother in seven years, and I would use the money to see her again. They'd be putting makeup on. What are you going to do with $20,000? I haven't seen my mom in seven years, and I would use the money to see her again. Right? So it's in my bones, okay? $25,000 question comes up. I want you to want me. I need you to need me. A little on the nose. I want you to want me. I'm begging you to beg me. Didn't I, didn't I, didn't I? Excellent job. And I fucking nailed it. And they, you know, obviously put... An easy one, because out from backstage walks my mother and my sisters. <laughs> On national television. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, motherfucking dun. Now, spoiler alert, you've already met my mother, right? She told me that that was going to happen. I already knew they were going to surprise me. She was like, you'll lose everything, but I have to tell you, keep this secret for a month. <laughs> um, of which I didn't, but no one cares. Um, so, but it was still, holy shit, my sisters in seven years have boobs now. Yes. Crazy. And my mom has exploded to 300 pounds. <laughs> Fuck. You know, like... It was very bizarre and insane and very emotional, uh, and it was all happening on television. And then she had to just sit behind me, and I had to keep going. <laughs> so we went on to the $50,000 question. Uh, who can it be knocking at my door? Go away. Don't come around here, no more blank faces. Okay. <laughs> Can't you see that it's late at night? Anybody? It's not Toto. Uh, and I'm not feeling right, it's meant to work. All I want is to be alone, yeah? Go away, don't you invade my home. Best be smart and stay outside. Yeah! Yeah! Fox was like, you got your mother, get the fuck out. And I was like, okay. But I had lifelines, everyone. And I had brought two lifelines. I had brought my father, okay. aforementioned, right? And then I had brought my father's second wife's new husband. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know who that was? Jeff. The guy from karaoke. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. This bitch might be fucked up, but she's smart, you know? So... Wayne Brady's like, all right, Rebecca, who are you gonna pick? And I'm like, uh, Jeff, Wayne. <laughs> Fuck that guy. <laughs> the other one's a sperm donor. I'll have Jeff. Um, I'm just kidding. My dad and I are fine. Um, so, <laughs> so uh, Jeff comes up and he nails it, of course. And he's like this awkward giant man and he drops the mic on it. Like he's, you know, like, go it, don't you and me, mom. And he like puts it up in the air. To where, like, Wayne Brady makes fun of him. I have it on camera. He's like, oh, shit, you were, you were all badass about it. He has since lost, like, 100 pounds. It, like, changed his life. It's amazing. It's amazing. At least I could do, because I didn't give him a cent. So, um, he got $50,000. I got $50,000. I'm on to 100, right? And then it's, uh, my bags are packed. I'm ready to go. I'm standing here outside your door. Thank you, ma'am. I hate to see you off to say goodbye. Can you sing it? No, you skipped it, ma'am. No, she went to the end, which is? On a jet plane. Yeah, again, an on the nose. On the fucking nose, right? It's like, we gotta put like, I want you, I'm sad, leave on a plane because of my mother, right? Uh, so it peppered everything. So I got the hundred grand. Now I had made, thank you. I had made a promise that at a hundred, no more gambling. If I had gotten 50, I would have gambled if I had no lifelines, didn't know anything, because it's only a $25,000 drop. At 100, I lose 75. And 100 is life-changing money, especially for a drunken Olive Garden employee. <laughs> that is a lot of never-ending possible. Because <laughs> I may have worked there, but I was a big fan. So, uh, so I was like, no gambling, but also, on the serious tip, I was dying. Like, I had to have something to change my life or I was going to die. I was ritualistically driving home drunk, constantly. I was doing comedy in LA, living in the suburbs, and I would wake up in the morning and there'd be a ding in my car and I wouldn't remember it. I'm the, your worst nightmare. <laughs> uh, now, I'm the one that, you know, the unsuspecting drunk driver, but the consistent drunk driver. Because it was like, who gives a fuck? I can't make anybody happy. Nothing works out for me. You know, my own family doesn't want me, so fuck it, you know? And at 21, how it processes is, let's party, I gotta go home. So I wasn't gonna gamble. And I went on to the $200,000 question. And I picked rock anthems. And I'm thinking Queen. I'm thinking Journey. Fucking anything but the song that I got. And the song that I got was The Boys Are Back in Town by Tin Lizzy. You didn't even know it was Tin. It's 
spelled thin and it's tin. Because they're fucking idiots. This song sucks. And I hope they all die. <laughs> no, you know what? Give me a drink. I'm going to dry. No. Uh, I'm just kidding. So I'm like, fuck, in my head. I'm like, fuck, and smiling on the outside. And I do it, and I don't know it. I think I put the lyrics to Twist in the Night away in it just to, like, be entertaining and show I like black music. Um, and so I don't get it, and I have one lifeline left, and it's A, B, or C. And I get the choices, and I tell them, look, I can't gamble, I gotta go, because you can walk away. So I walk away, and he goes, okay, well, what would you have picked? <laughs> and I would have picked the correct answer, and I would have got $200,000. So that life-changing money would have been doubled. Who knows who I would have been? Except a musical improviser, but um, uh, so I got it right, and then you know, greatest moment of my life thus far. And afterwards, I get to like have lunch with my mom and be like, "Huh, huh? I love you. Hey, all is forgotten, you know, whatever." And uh, then you know, she leaves, and I go back to my life, which is exactly the same. It's not like I go back a $100,000 air and then we're done, goodbye. I go back a drunk, depressed Olive Garden employee. I go back to working at Olive Garden. I go back to being an idiot. I go back to all the normal stuff. And so it's like you're drowning and you see a boat and you're like, oh my God, a fucking boat. Oh my God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna live, I'm gonna live, I'm gonna live, hello, hello. Hello? Why are they turning off their motor? What? Why are they just stopping? And then they just sit there. And you just wait to be saved. But it's not coming. And so I went back to my ways, and I probably went even harder, because it's also been consistent with my life at that point, is that every time I got settled, every time I thought I was okay, I wasn't. So I didn't think it was coming. I thought there would be like, I'm not going to air. I'll never get the money. Couldn't use it. Something's happening, right? And so one day, 4 a.m., hit a center divider at 75 miles an hour. Yeah. And I almost went through the windshield. Uh, I had a burn and a cut all the way down my chest. If I didn't have my seatbelt on, I would have died. And how fucking sad would that be? Like, woman wins $100,000 on Fox and then dies. <laughs> it's okay to laugh, you guys. <laughs> Wayne Brady's laughing behind me. <laughs> see him. Hi, Wayne. Um, at that point, uh, that, it's that adult moment where you go, oh, wait. My childhood problems have stopped, and now I'm continuing these problems. My life has been really bad because of other idiots that didn't know what they were doing, but then I have just taken on the tradition of just fucking my own life up 
and I could have lost everything. It would have been the saddest funeral ever next to like princes, you know what I mean? I would have been second to prince. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? Well, what kind of stories are people going to tell? I'm not going out on a high note. I got through that because I knew secretly that I had the money coming and it meant so much more than it did before the accident. Like I had won it for six months prior. I had been someone getting $100,000 inevitably six months prior. But then after I almost lost it on my own, it was just intensely more like, holy shit, I really do actually maybe have a chance. And so I got the money in February of 2009, a year and a month after I won it. And I moved to New York three weeks later with like a duffel bag. Thank you. And uh, yeah, give it up for duffel bags. Give it up for duffel bags. Incredible, ergonomic, practical. Um, so I came here and I started to use the thing that my mother, even though she hadn't seen me in seven years, she saw in me was that I could use my form of entertainment or my, you know, art to save myself. And so I came here and I've been doing art and I just had a show here last week doing improv, which who does improv mainstream? Nobody except Mr. Brady back here. <laughs> and the interesting thing is now I'm in New York doing musical improv after winning money on a game show with the god of musical improv. So Wayne Brady, I'm coming for your motherfucking job, okay? <laughs> Thank you so much. You look like a douchebag in the middle of the night. Blinded by the light. Swept up like a tush under the rotor of the night. Blinded by the light. Dressed up like a moose in a puddle overnight. Blinded by the light. Lit up like a douchebag caught on fire in the night. Ripped up with a goose that got run over in the night? Blinded by the light. Have you seen my pooch? He got picked up by a kite. A little early birdie came by in his curly whirly and asked me if I needed a ride. Well, sure, I asked if you needed a ride, but did you just say I gave your anus curly whirly? In 1979, I was a private in the Army stationed at Fort uh, Lewis, Washington. And life was hard enough as it is as one of the lowest ranking uh, soldiers in the platoon. The platoon is a group of soldiers of about 40 or 60 people. Without having a bunch of guys in the platoon, mostly white guys, who would make a lot of jokes at my expense, they usually had some kind of racist innuendos to them. So you got to understand how happy I was when I found out we were getting a new platoon sergeant, and he was black. 
Now, the platoon sergeant is the highest-ranking non-commissioned officer in the platoon. And this guy was big, and he was dark, and he had scars on his face, and he was muscular, and he was in the habit of putting pictures of dead Viet Cong up in his office. And he was mean. So I knew that he was never going to put up with any of these shenanigans. And it didn't take long before he started giving me the kind of attention I was looking for, but not quite what I expected. He would start calling me out whenever we were in the field and things were getting kind of stressful and just to lighten up the mood, he'd be making jokes at my expense. He would ask me silly, dumb questions like, uh, hey, Christian, you know, I just can't put my finger on it, but there's just something about you. Let me guess. How did the army let somebody as stupid as you in? And the guys would laugh and laugh and they would think this was the funniest thing in the world. And he would say things to me like, you know, I just can't put my finger on it, but there's gotta be a perfect nickname for you. Let me see, what is it? I can't put my finger on it. Oh, I know what it is, cornbread. Your nickname is cornbread. Well, the guys in the platoon, they just thought this was the funniest damn thing. Calling me cornbread was supposed to have some kind of connotation of being country, some kind of bumpkin, a hick, or something like that. And the guys thought this was funny all the time. And he would always use it when he was speaking to me. He'd go, cornbread, come here. Cornbread, go do that. And that was starting to piss me off because now the guys in the platoon were calling me cornbread. And I wasn't taking any shit from them, but I had to take shit from him. Well... We were out in the field one time to show you how far this had went, and I remember a message coming across the radio. Alpha 1-3, this is Alpha 1-0, send up two men and cornbread, over. And I was like, what the, what? And I remember looking at the duty roster, and it said, cornbread, guard duty. So then I was thinking, oh, this is just too damn much. This guy is, he's humiliating me. He's making me look like a fool. I'm a bumpkin to everybody in the platoon. I'm always the butt of everybody's joke. I wonder if there's something I could do to get back at this guy. What kind of revenge could I possibly get? I knew that I couldn't do anything legal. I was the lowest ranking private in the platoon. He was a non-commissioned officer. And then there was this dynamic that he was black and I was black and us being of different ranks, I knew in that era and that culture that nobody was gonna do anything about it. I had only for a half a second thought about doing something physical with him, but I knew he would kill me and then have me (laughs) court-martialed. So I started thinking, what kind of dirty tricks could I play on him? I thought, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll take some mud and shove it in the barrel of his weapon, and we'll go out training and blow up in his face. And I thought, no, I know what I'll do. I'll take some shit and throw it in his coffee. I mean, real shit. So I started asking around, talking to the guys about dirty tricks and something a guy told me about a razor blade. So I got this idea in my head. I was gonna take a razor blade and glue it to the underside of his door handle of his car. And that way, when he grabbed the door handle, he would snatch it and rip all the meat off his fingers. So I got my razor blade, 
and I got some super glue. Super glue, crazy glue, gorilla glue, whatever they call it now. You know, they used to have those commercials where the guy would have the helmet on. They raised him up with a crane. They had two trucks pulling each other, trying to get the crazy glue apart. They say on the label, it can bond your skin together. Don't touch this. It good. It works. So I got my super glue and I got my razor blade and it was getting around. The sun was coming down and I worked my way around to the parking lot. I found this car. I squatted down. But while I was there listening to the grass rustling and leaves moving by in cars, I was getting a little bit nervous and I was thinking, this is crazy. I can't pull this off. But then I thought about cornbread. <laughs> yeah, I can do this. <laughs> so I, I squatted down, I looked around, I got my razor blade, I put super glue on both sides. <laughs> I placed it under the door handle. I applied pressure. I waited five seconds. I looked left. I looked right. Mission accomplished. I'm ready to get the hell out of here. I jumped up to run off. My fingers stuck to the damn car. I can't get away. I'm twisting and turning and squatting and doing all kind of maneuvers. I can't get my fingers off the damn car without ripping them off. And it's getting to the point where my legs are starting to cramp up. I'm in this weird, awkward, yoga-like position, sweats pouring in my eyes, and I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. And every time I would hear a stick or a bird or something crackle, I was getting nervous. And then I heard the sound of footsteps coming toward me in the parking lot. I didn't have any choice. I had to get the hell out of there. So I snatched my fingers off the car and I took off running. <laughs> As I was running around back to the barracks, I noticed that my fingers, all the superficial skin of them had been ripped off and they were stinging and sizzling and burning and blood was coming out of them. So I got in the barracks and I went inside the latrine and I started running cold water on them. My hands were really, really hurting. And then I heard the sound of footsteps coming down the hall. And boom, the latrine door is kicked open. It's the platoon sergeant. And he's heaving and breathing hard. And I could see him holding his hands together. His blood was squirting out of it. And he was looking at me and he said, you, you, what the hell happened to you? And I didn't know what to say. I just wanted to throw him off. And I said, well, I, I, my fingers fell off. My fingers, I think our fingers got cut off. He said, oh, oh, oh just, just, just calm the hell down. Something happened to me too. Somebody's doing shit to cars. I said, yeah, yeah, I know. You know, it happened to me too. I didn't even have a fucking car. So he ended up having to go to the hospital and uh, I heard that uh, he had to have some surgery and that he was suffering from uh, some severe nerve damage to his hands. And for a while I was really nervous whether or not they was going to conduct some type of investigation and what would happen if he found out. I knew he would kill me. But you can understand how relieved I was when I found out that uh, the injury was such that he was never going to return to duty. And I felt pretty good about that. <laughs> that I got rid of one of the meanest motherfuckers in the world. 
Now, I don't know if he had some idea, kind of some idea, what happened and who did it. But maybe he just couldn't put his finger on it. This is Mavis Staples behind me now, and we just heard from the great Ray Christian. Like I said before, you have got to check out his podcast, What's Ray Saying? He is so fantastic. That was Ray in Carborough, North Carolina. And before that, we heard a little interstitial created by Jeff Barr with Manfred Mann and various friends of ours who we called a couple hours ago and said, hey, can you speak some misheard lyrics to Blinded by the Light into the voice memo app of your phone? So that's what that was. Our final story on this week's episode is, I I have to say, I was just so blown away when I heard it. On one level, it's not surprising, though, because Paul Gilmartin has the most remarkable podcast. If you've never heard it, The Mental Illness Happy Hour is a place a lot like Risk where the level of honesty and the level of, you know, people really digging into what they really and truly deeply feel and think about on The Mental Illness Happy Hour is extraordinary. Now, Paul got up and told this story at the Risk Live show at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles and... As much as I dearly love our Los Angeles show, I think people out there are a little bit more used to comedians getting up and being polished comedians for the most part, right? Paul got up there and showed what a risk story can really be, right? Just all out raw truth. And uh, it can be pretty uncomfortable. It might be especially uncomfortable for people who have had inappropriate intimacy happening in their own families. But let's let the story speak for itself. Here now is Paul Gilmartin at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles with a story we call Covert. Can you get I want to know. I want to know if you can.
Howdy, howdy, howdy. Tell you a little bit about myself. I am a recovering alcoholic uh, drug addict. I battle uh, what my psychiatrist calls treatment-resistant depression due to childhood adversity. I am an incest survivor. My abuser was my mom. And that is a lot of information to fit onto a business card. (laughs) And that will be the only laugh of this. So I hope you enjoyed it. If you were to look at my home where I grew up, uh, south side of Chicago, from the outside, everything looked good. We were an upper middle class family. We were provided for. There was no hitting, not really much in the way of voices being raised. But there was always an emptiness inside me that I could never really put my finger on. When I discovered drugs and alcohol at like 14, something just clicked in me and I felt like I could function in the world. And for many, many years, it worked for me. But for a lot of alcoholics and drug addicts, eventually it stops working. In 2003, I'd kind of hit rock bottom and I knew that I needed help. My psychiatrist refused to treat me anymore unless I at least tried to stop drinking. So I did go get help and I got sober. And suddenly I, I saw so many things that I hadn't been able to see before. Mostly I saw what a dick I had been. I saw how afraid I was, how arrogant I was, how I used people as the butt of my jokes to elevate myself, or so I thought. And I began to view the world differently, but there was still a part of me that felt like something was unresolved. At six years of sobriety, I found myself, among other things, looking at pornography in a way that was really compulsive. So I decided to go to another support group because I had always had a fear of intimacy. I had always been attracted to women who were lukewarm about me. But if you looked at me with love in your eyes, it would just make me sick to my stomach and I would just want to run. So I knew that there was an intimacy issue. So I went to the support group and um, I began to learn how to get vulnerable. I learned how beautiful it felt to let my guard down. I'd always had this fantasy when I was a a little boy about being able to go up to an older girl on the playground and that she would wrap me in her arms and hold me while I cried. I never knew what that was exactly about. And when I got into therapy and stuff, I was like, oh, you know, my mom wasn't really there for me, so that's probably what it was about. And I just kind of brushed it off. But as I started to go for periods without compulsively looking at pornography and other stuff, I began to get back into my body. I began to realize how numb I had been for my entire life and that that was the purpose that the drugs and the alcohol and uh, pornography had served for me. And I began to experience people differently. I began to suddenly sense when somebody was toxic and when they weren't and when they were safe. I began to feel differently around my mom. I began to notice that when I was around her, I would just become drained and she would become more excited, you know, as if she was getting high off me. I would feel the dread when the phone would ring because sharing anything with her usually involved either lavish praise or 
some type of criticism. And so I would find myself shutting down and trying to share as little information with her as possible because it just, it didn't feel safe. And I began to realize that the way she looked at me made me sick. That I finally found the phrase to describe it and it's that she drinks me in with her eyes. I used to think that if a parent pays attention to you and they're not hitting you, and they're not yelling at you, it must be good. That must be love. But I began to give weight to what I felt in my body. Because people in my support group had told me, you know, what if the feelings in your body are true? And so I did begin to give weight to things. And I said, why does my skin crawl when I hug her? Why do I feel like every time I hug her, it's for her and it's never been for me? I began to look at how at six years old, I became her confidant and she would break down and cry to me about her marriage and say how she wanted to leave us all and we were selfish bastards. And I took it upon myself to try to cheer her up and let her know that we were all going to be better And I thought about the times that the reverse happened where, for instance, like one time I was 11 years old and my testicles hadn't descended and I was ashamed of my body and I'm laying on a doctor's table. It's at a university, the University of Chicago. And the nurse says, take your clothes off, get on the table, the doctor will be in to see you shortly. And they didn't give me anything to cover up with. And at 11 years old, you don't know that, that you're entitled to that. And I'm laying there and it's cold and I'm just ashamed. And it didn't occur to me that a mother should have said, can you give him something to cover up with? And then the doctor entered with a herd of people. And I felt myself like almost leave my body. And I just remember staring at the ceiling and the way he was touching me was like I was a piece of meat and he was talking about what was wrong with my genitals. And I just remembered shame from head to toe, just burning with shame. And at one point I looked over to the side and a female intern, our eyes met and she looked at me with a look that said, I am so sorry. And I felt the tears come up. And I remember fighting them back because I didn't want anybody to see that I was crying. So I looked back at these events of how I had to be there for her. And then she was just so detached from when I needed her. And then I started thinking about how she used to chide me for not wanting to be naked around her. She would make me feel as if I was the weird one for wanting to to cover up. Uh, She would always say, well, it's nothing I haven't seen before. You know, I saw it before you ever did. I always had this feeling when she would be doing her duties as a mother, there was occasionally times that I felt like I was being tricked, but I would brush it out of my mind. She took my temperature rectally until I was eight years old. You know, I'm told that there's really not a need to do that once children are infants anymore. I didn't know that, but I remember at eight years old asking her why we were still doing it that way. She said, well, because I'm afraid you're going to bite down on the thermometer. And I remember not believing her. 
And I remember feeling like she was tricking me. And I remember also wondering, why does she disappear with a thermometer for so long after she takes it out of me? And then there was a bath that I had scraped my knee when I was about uh, 11 or 12 years old. I was just kind of short of puberty. Maybe I was 12 years old. And she said, well, to get the gravel out of your knee, let's get you in the bathtub. And I remember my first instinct was, no, I'm too old you know, to be naked in front of my mom. And I thought, I'll put on a bathing suit. And then I anticipated the conversation, which would usually happen, which is her chiding me for wanting to cover up. And I didn't want to hear that, so I didn't wear a bathing suit. And I'm sitting in the tub waiting for her to come in, and I got an erection. I was horrified. I was like, what is happening? Why? Why now? Why? And it wouldn't go down. And she came in, and she was giving me the bath, and nothing was mentioned, you know? But I had an erection while she was cleaning my leg. It was like there was just this sexual energy in the air that that wasn't being addressed. Shortly after that, first of all, I just felt like a creep. I felt like, what is wrong with you? I didn't put this together until a couple of years ago, but shortly after that bath incident, another mother was over at our house one time, and they were downstairs and I was upstairs, and something came over me and I took all of my clothes off and I spied on them and I had the most intense arousal I'd ever experienced in my life. My heart was pounding, my hands were shaking and it was like something was driving me to do this and the other mom saw that I was spying on them. I don't think she saw that I was naked but she said, you know, it's not polite to eavesdrop and I thought, oh my God, she knows and it's like at that moment, my soul had been tattooed, you know, like, you are a fucking monster. What is the matter with you? And I remember my family went to my favorite restaurant that night, and I remember I couldn't even eat because I was so disgusted with myself. I was so sickened by what I had done, and I was so confused because it was not something I wanted to do. After three years of being in my support group, One of the things that they emphasize you do is you look at your patterns of behavior to understand when you're being triggered. I'd always explained away the individual incidents with my mom. And one day, I saw the pattern, like my support group had helped me do for myself, and I applied it to her. And it hit me like a bolt of lightning that I was an object to my mother. And the pain that came up was so intense. And my first instinct was to go want to, you know, obsessively look at pornography. And I knew that wasn't the answer. And so I went to my wife and I said, can I have a hug? She hugged me. And then the words came out of my mouth that I had wanted to say on the playground to a girl. I said, she tricked me. She used me. And I was a good boy, and I didn't deserve that. And then I just started crying. And my wife said, I've been waiting 20 years for you to say that. My wife knew something was off the first hour that she met my mom and saw the way that she talked to me and touched me and and looked at me. And I would just always think that my wife was making too big of a deal. And as I began to talk about this in therapy... I came to find out that there are different 
types of sexual abuse. I had only ever heard about overt sexual abuse where, you know, the genitals are being touched or things that you can easily point to and say that's super fucked up. And I came to find out that there is such a thing as covert sexual abuse and incest and that that's what I had experienced. And the way in which you're abused doesn't really matter that much because covert abuse and overt abuse, the message is the same to that child, which is you don't matter. And I finally felt the truth that I didn't matter. And I thought, how can I have been so wrong for so long? And my therapist said, that is what a person's brain does when they are sexually violated. Because it's safer for a child to say, I am a monster, than to say, I'm in the care of somebody who is not safe. I realized I forgave myself for having an erection that day in the bathtub. I began to hear from other survivors, people who had experienced an orgasm while they were being raped, uh, people who were being serially molested by a parent and would occasionally initiate it themselves. I came to realize that your body and your soul can experience two completely different things at the same time. And we often look to how our body reacts to minimize what happened to us. I also had to begin to look at ways in which I was similar to my mom because I began to see that I had objectified women all my life, that I was not good with boundaries with them. That was really hard to look at. Fantasies were left in the wake of the realization. I had never had an incest fantasy in my life until I saw the truth of what happened. And then the most powerful fantasy to me was being 11 years old again and having a different mom give me a bath, but taking it to a sexual place and then holding me while I cried. And I didn't judge myself for it because I knew from therapy and support groups that this is one of the weird things that our brains do to process this. Another fantasy that I had, um, and just recently it started to go away, thank God. The fantasy is that I would, at my age now, manipulate my mom into watching me masturbate. It, It was really nice not judging myself for that, walking to the bathroom thinking, I'm about to go jerk off thinking about my mom watching me jerk off. And I would chuckle to myself. And I thought, this is kind of what recovery looks like. It's not like a switch flips and suddenly you're better and all the shame leaves, but maybe it leaves just a little bit at a time. And as I began to share with people, friends, other survivors, people in front of me in line at Sioux Plantation, (laughs) it will get the line moving. I began to hear how many people had moms who were similar to my mom and that the important part of processing this isn't to lay blame on the perpetrator, but for us to stop hating ourselves and to own our stories. I began to look at how little I knew about my emotions as a child. You know, my emotions were so often negated. I was told that what I was feeling, you know, wasn't appropriate. And I 
began to learn that there are no wrong feelings. There's just healthy or unhealthy ways of expressing them. And I thought, fuck, why are we not teaching this in school? We teach driver's ed. Because I posted on Facebook, we should have emotional literacy starting in kindergarten so kids can understand what they're feeling and to know how to deal with it. And somebody posted, it's not the government's job. Well, I wish it wasn't. But we teach driver's ed, why? So cars don't crash into each other and people don't get hurt. Well, think about how many people get hurt because of emotional poverty in this country. You know, think how much less violence there would be, how much less PTSD, how many parents would be able to be there, present for their kids, not fucked up on drugs or putting their fists through a wall. I cut contact with my mom about two years ago. I originally cut contact because I was on the verge of going home to celebrate her birthday when all this stuff came up and I thought I can't be in the same room with her. I left her a message and I said, I don't hate you, I'm not angry at you, I just need a break because I'm exhausted. Then after a year went by, I thought maybe I can try doing correspondence with her because that maybe that'll feel safe. I said, I don't want to talk about the past and I had not confronted her. She honored that for one letter, and then she started doing what she wanted to do, which is, it's not worth going into, but every time I would just feel so incredibly depressed, every time I tried to rescue this relationship with her, I thought, I am making myself insane trying to have a relationship with this person. And I recalled a conversation that I had had with her probably about a year before the truth of everything hit me. My mom was doing this thing that she always does, which is if you don't agree with her, she will pester you until you give in. She will just wear you out. And then she will just, like a switch would flip, she'd be in a different mood. And she did that to me one day, and she wanted to, I don't know, like read some spiritual literature after she just badgered me for 15 minutes. And I said, Mom, I know you want to be closer to me, but I don't feel safe around you. And she just looked right through me. She had no interest in wanting to know why. And that was, when I remembered that moment, I thought, this is not a person that I can have a relationship with. The thing that I believe in now is that it's important to have compassion for people, but it's more important to have compassion for yourself. Thank you. I was born on a boat.
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Goldspot behind me now, and we just heard from the wonderful Paul Gilmartin. As I said before, you should definitely check out his podcast, The Mental Illness Happy Hour. You can find it at mentalpod.com. And Paul also asked if I could mention that, you know, a great resource for help for incest survivors is the Rape and Incest National Network at rain.org. For male survivors, there's also oneinsix.org. And a great book about covert incest is Silently Seduced by Kenneth Adams. Now, here is where Risk is happening next. We are in Brooklyn again at the Bell House on April 9th. Michael Ian Black, Michelle Buteau, Don Will, and Lawrence O'Keefe will be at that show. That'll be remarkable. April 9th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. On April 22nd, we'll be back in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater. Mystery is the theme that night. Then on April 29th, we're in Minneapolis at Brave New Workshop. We're still taking pitches for the April 29th Minneapolis show at Brave New Workshop. The theme that night is action. On May 20th, we are in Denver, Colorado. Denver, we're still taking pitches for that show, too, at the Bluebird Theater on May 20th. The theme is Irresistible. June 9th, we're in Portland, Oregon at Revolution Hall. The theme is Hype. That's June 9th, Portland, Oregon. The theme is Hype. June 10th, we're in Seattle at the Vera Project. The theme is Destructive. On June 11th, Vancouver. Vancouver will be at St. James Hall. The theme is Monster. Now, we are still taking pitches for Portland on the 9th, Seattle on the 10th, and Vancouver on the 11th of June. Three June dates in a row there. Portland, Seattle, and Vancouver. And we're taking pitches for all three of them. So contact us. Go to the risk-show.com slash submissions page to submit your pitch. On July 8th, we're in Washington, D.C. And that's at the Black Cat. The theme that night is one of a kind. Again, still taking pitches for that one. That should take us far enough into the future so folks <laughs> today's the day take a risk stamps.com brings all the services of the u.s postal service right to your fingerprint my fucking christ